0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHearNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So I'd like to invite you as I as I talk tonight to take it as a It's a kind of a meditation, which is to say, you don't have to remember anything. There's no quiz at the end. Um, You can listen and sense if there's something that resonates as helpful or true. If not, just let it go by. Um, It's, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting and um, challenging time. So... I just really want to reflect out loud um, and hope something's of use. Before I start, though, I have a question to pose to you, um, just to hear, connect a little bit. Um, what topics, what things might you hope that I would touch on tonight? And just, <laughs> just give, me, give me a few, a few words and uh, we'll see. I, 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 I'm prepared to be surprised, but one never knows. Just raise your hand, somebody, anybody. Yeah. Climate change. Anger management. (laughs) (laughs) Understanding. Understanding, Understanding. equanimity. Fear. Despair. 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 Fear and despair. Okay. Totalitarianism. Totalitarianism. Survival, healing, Healing. how to keep hearts open, children, activism, Trump, she says, Trump. (laughs) Yes, President-elect Trump, yes. Leadership. Leadership. Okay, I get the point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is helpful, though. Race. 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 Yes. So it is difficult times um, post election. And one of the things that I hope that tonight and Spirit Rock can be for you and and as a kind of reminder of what you can make within your own life is a sanctuary a sanctuary of calm, a sanctuary of loving awareness to hold everything. Um, Because difficulties are inevitable. If you haven't noticed in human incarnation, there's praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain, you know, and success and, and setbacks and failures. Anybody not have that? You can have your, whatever it is, $8 back, whatever you paid. Um, It's going to happen. You know, trouble, said Zorba the Greek, that's called life, you know. Um, And there's a purpose in it uh, for us, or it can have a purpose. Just as we go right now into the darkest time of the year, into the solstice. And you can feel it with the time change and the seasons shifting that darkness has a purpose, as the poet says, gradually it will school your eyes and your heart to find the luminous spirit, the true gifts that are required to navigate, hidden in this night's corner. Thich Nhat Hanh, as many of you heard often, described, you said, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained centered and calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone on the boat to survive. So here we are, and there are these national and international questions and uncertainties and fears, as people named. Um, Climate change, uh, jobs, immigration, racism, Black Lives Matter, um, security, um, the role of and the rights of women, LGBTQ, um, human rights in general, our prison system. All these things um, are in the process of being shaken changed possibly in ways and basically at the moment, all uncertain, we're right now in an uncertain time. We've actually been in uncertain times all along, (laughs) just so you know, but it's particularly visible at certain. How do we respond in a time of uncertainty? And I noticed myself, um, after the election and also talking to some other people. And there were different levels of my experience. My body, because I had a particular predilection in this election, um, which I won't say, but you could guess, um, uh, felt after a very long night um, like PTSD. Uh, when I tuned into my body, there was that kind of fight, flight, or freeze that got activated. Um, fear, sadness, confusion. Um, but more than that, it was kind of locked in my body in some way. Um, and then I began to realize that the election, least as I could see it, was also about survival on both sides, on all sides, people who were worried about surviving in some way or other. And it moved survival fears from one group to another, perhaps. But everybody who was part of it in some fashion also could feel, will I survive? Will the things that matter to me survive? And, and if you look at it from a neuroscience perspective, as well as Dharma, um, you start to see that um, the way the campaign went in the election, it somehow hijacked the limbic system, it hijacked the, the reptilian brain. And that was really what was operating for a lot of people not the new neocortex kind of looking at it thoughtfully, but it was really primitive fears for a lot of people. Um, And so that was all in my body and in other people's bodies. And so that's just the first thing to uh, being mindful to pay attention to, how to acknowledge that survival of those fears and also how to be present for them so that they can unwind and untangle so that they're not carried in the way we react then i looked at my mind it was a mess you know it was racing and trying to figure out and rehashing and if only and planning and you know somebody called this the united states of anxiety right now um and catastrophizing in different ways and as mark twain says said so notably my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes most of which never happened um That I could see all the catastrophizing and it, it was just having a field day going crazy, basically. Okay, there's the mind. Then I tuned into my heart and that was different. It got quieter. That's the place where for me, compassion, wisdom, love, graciousness live. And somehow there was a sense of being here in the midst of it all of a stillness of being present which is what we did tonight when we sat inviting ourselves to come into the present in a deeper way to breathe to relax even amidst the uncertainty to tie your shoes and keep walking in the right direction you know and from my from that attention i realized that what was important was to not let fear take over my heart Yes, there were the thoughts, and yes, there was stuff in the body, Um, but to not let my heart be colonized by fear and by that kind of primitive um, activation that's been so powerful in all sides in the country. And then I opened my attention, meditation, further to a kind of vastness, to what my teacher Ajahn Chah called the one who knows, to being the space of loving awareness as a witness with vast perspective. And from this vastness, we sense the winter solstice coming and the turning of the seasons and the rise and fall of political dynasties and the rise and fall of whole civilizations and eras and the turning of the spheres and somehow we're a part of this whole great turning that we can see and we become we can become the the witness the one who knows the loving awareness that says wow this is a historic time we're living through i mean where history becomes really visible in some way um with interest and a care but also not so tangled in the middle of it. There's a kind of, someone mentioned the word equanimity or balance simply by making a vast space of it and looking over time, over a long period of time. And as Gandhi said, when I despair, so there he was despairing like someone else who mentioned it here, not just that one person. I remember that all through history, There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they can seem invincible, right? But, he goes on, in the end, they always fall, always. So that's Gandhi taking that vast perspective. They can seem invincible, and in the end... and we look at the state of the world and there are tyrants in all kinds of forms and so forth. They can seem invincible, but in the end, they always fall, always. And it was some way that Gandhi could hold the, the, the dance of humanity, the tainted glory, the troubled, the troubled life of human beings, some of it uh, stupendously, unbearably beautiful, and some of it is my Zen master, uh, Sun San, Sansini McCree Zen master would say, human beings, number one bad animal, right? <laughs> so you kind of get both sides to it. And I spoke the last month when I was here about this beautiful new book that uh, has come out called The Book of Joy, which is um, a dialogue between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu. And these friends were able to fly Archbishop Tutu to Dharamsala and um, invite the two of them to have a week together um, and record how it could be that they could laugh and be joyful um, when Tutu lived through the horrors of apartheid, you know, people being killed and shot and necklaced with uh, tires and gasoline and, you know, just... um, really atrocious times for a long period and the Dalai Lama even now people will walk barefoot over the Himalayas and come to see him out of Tibet who'd been in prison or tortured and so forth and he hears those stories you know every week when he's there and yet somehow they laugh and the book is full of them playing with one another too you know where where um they're sitting and they're about to have lunch and Tutu t- starts to tell him a story and then the food starts to come in and the Dalai Lama turns and Tutu says, you're not listening to me, your holiness. You know, how am I going to get your attention? And the Dalai Lama says, I think maybe you need a stick to hit me with. And so Tutu pretends to start hitting me. Says, no, no, the cameras are on. We're supposed to be holy men. Cut that out, you know. <laughs> and you just feel their love for one another, which they actually express. There's something so beautiful and you see the. You, there, there are a bunch of photos in it of them kind of laughing with one another. Um, and uh, they're talking about what it means to carry a sense of happiness and joy, even in the midst of the sorrows of the world. And they would say, what good does our spiritual life have for us if it leaves us depressed, if we can't truly be happy where we are, you know? And so then they start talking about where where they might get reborn, Um Okay, I was saying, do you really think that when, uh, I didn't say if, when the Dalai Lama arrives in heaven, they're talking about Christianity and Buddhism, that God will say, oh, Dalai Lama, you've been rather wonderful. What a pity you're not a Christian. You'll have to go to that warmer place, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and the tutu pauses and in a very intimate moment says, I think one of the best things that ever happened to me in my whole life was meeting you. And then the Dalai Lama smiled and started to tell another story. And the tutu says, "I thought we were trying to eat. Come on, let's stop the story, you know." And they're just bantering back and forth. Um, and they go on to talk about dying because you know they're old guys; they're in their eighties. And and Dalai Lama says, "Well, I suppose you're going to go to heaven, right?" Sort of. Um, and uh, tutu says, "How about you?" And Dalai Lama says, "Maybe hell." Um, and Tutu says, but I, I thought you, you Buddhists believe in rebirth. Uh, and then he pauses. Dalai Lama says, well, it's all uncertain. We have to wait to see. Even that is uncertain, right? And, and Tutu goes on, well, you better be nice to the Chinese because they're planning to pick your next incarnation. So, <laughs> you know. And what they talk about amidst their teasing with one another um, is a, deep joy and a celebration of the life they've been given no matter what, that there's something magnificent and beautiful about life as it is, that that the, the leaves on the trees take light and turn it into sugar. I mean, what a planet, you know, it's fantastic. Um, the turning of the seasons, the birth of new babies and children. All you have to do is see some little, you know, kid wandering around looking at the, Wow, where did I get born? Looking at the trees. And, you know, I remember taking my daughter when she was little to these great monuments. You take a little kid to the Grand Canyon and they reach down and they pick up the stone and say, isn't that pretty? You know, they don't need to look at the Grand Canyon because everything is the Grand Canyon to them. And you get that sense of, uh, from the Dalai Lama of this, and, and Archbishop Tutu, of this delight in being alive no matter what, and gratitude for it. Um, So how do we respond and not let fear take over the heart is really our question. And how might we practice in such a way that fosters this? Mindfulness, loving awareness, invites a deep listening, A kind of profound listening. Because if you look at the election, whatever side you are on, or however you voted or believe, um, I believe the result of the election and the, the, you know, of uh, Trump's um, electoral victory, um, I see it as a symptom, Um, not as something in itself concrete, but I believe it's a symptom for. Many people, anyway, that expresses fear, again, that survival place, that expresses loss, pain, um, lack of hope, or loss of meaning. Um, And the question is can we not turn on one another? Can we turn toward one another? Can we listen to the fears that are underneath and the loss and the loss of meaning and all of those kinds of things. As Thomas Burton, the Christian mystic says, of what use is it to travel to the moon if we cannot cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves and from one another? And so to practice as we have is really an invitation to be present for the way things are and to listen more deeply than just the superficial level. And listening, turns out, for human beings, is a beautiful thing. My beloved wife, Trudy Goodman, colleague, teacher, and um, inspiration to me, she's currently working in the Darfur refugee camps on the border inside Chad. Um, And uh, the project she's working for, there are people who are involved with her Dharma community in L.A., Um, they went in it's a, um, and they did something unusual in the camps. They asked the women what they wanted. Usually the aide comes in and somebody has an idea somewhere and they send it over or something. But they went in and they listened. They said, what do you want from the women? And they wanted two things. They wanted soccer. So their kids would have something uplifting to do and learn to co- cooperate with one another also. And they wanted preschool and kindergarten so that the little kids would begin to both un- perhaps unravel their trauma somewhat, but also begin to realize that they could learn about the world. Um, beautiful thing to ask people and then listen, say, well, what is it that you want? So she's there training teachers because um, she had run a school for little kids for a, lot of, for a long time, including disabled children and so forth. So she knows a lot about it. Um, she's over there training teachers in trauma work for little kids and in also these arts of emotional intelligence and and uh that aspect of education and it started just by listening or i was working recently with a with a very famous playwright in america who was worried because her son who was now in his 40s was an artist painter who didn't sell very many paintings and she'd been supporting him and should, couldn't he get a job, you know? And wasn't she just enabling him and ruining his life? Because she, um, she as a playwright, had was was very successful and quite wealthy, and been supporting him. The son um, was married; they had a couple of kids. And she said, I'm, "I'm somehow I feel like I'm ruining his life by not letting him become the man he should be." And I said, "Well, maybe so. Why don't you ask him?" <laughs> You know, that little surprise. Oh, so we sat down together and she asked him and he said, no, this is exactly what I want to do. Thank you. Thank you, mom. You know, I want to paint. I feel like not only that, I I use my art in this way and that way. And you're helping me live exactly the life I want. I don't want to be a school teacher. I don't want to, you know, the things you envision I should be. Thank you. And there's just something about listening to somebody and asking them, what is going on for you and what matters? one of my favorite Dharma stories is of a man named Vinoba Bhave. And Vinoba Bhave was the, probably after Gandhi was the most important uh, leader in the Gandhian movement after Mahatma Gandhi died. And when Gandhi died after the partition in India and Pakistan and uh, all of the destruction that happened as people fled and there was violence and so forth um, in those new nations, Um, After Gandhi was assassinated, the people who followed him were depressed, if not despairing, as someone raised that kind of those words in this room. And Vinoba, who'd been very close to Gandhi, um, just kind of went on retreat. I mean, it's like after the assassination of um, Dr. Martin Luther King, how um, uh, people were dispirited. They lost their spirit in some ways. It was so terrible. Um, and then a couple of years passed, and some of the people said, "Well, we want to have a conference to continue his work. We want to have a gathering. We want to bring the community together of those around Gandhi, And would you, Vinoba, you know, fly across the country and meet us in Madras or wherever it was going to be, um, and be our leader? Help us." And he refused. And then they pressed him, will you come, will you come, we need your voice. So finally he said, all right, I will come under one condition. I need to walk there. And the walk was six months across a big part of India. And so he started to walk. And he would go into the rural villages in the different poorer parts of India and sit under the big tree that you find in the center of many Indian villages with people in the evenings and just have a listening circle and say, what is your life like? What's um, happening for you as human beings? And after a series of villages, he began to hear more and more how the very poorest of the Indians there at that time, um, were kind of like indentured uh, to a system where they couldn't they couldn't raise their children they couldn't very well they couldn't make very much money because they had they were farmers but they were working someone else's land, um, and they were getting just a pittance a meager amount of money. And he became more and more troubled, so he went to sleep and woke up the next morning and called them all together and said, when I go back to Delhi, I'm going to meet with Prime Minister Nehru, who he knew, um, and I'm going to get the government to start a program to give parcels of land to the landless of you so you can grow your own food. And everyone became very happy. And he was delighted and so forth. He stayed another night and he didn't sleep very well. He called them together the next morning and he said, you know, I didn't sleep well because I realized the way government works, at least at that time in India and other places in the world, including here. He said, by the time the money gets allocated and goes through the states or the provinces and the, you know, the districts and the district cabinets, so when the, when the government allocates it, even if I can get them to do it, by the time it gets to you, there ain't going to be much. he was He was not all that um, trusting of government, which is also in our in the in the air right now in certain ways. And so he became a little bit despondent. What can we do? And then a man stood up, one of the wealthiest men in that particular village. Uh, landowner. And he said, you have come with the spirit of Mahatma Gandhi, who is so revered in India. And I hear this problem. How much land do we need for these families? And it turned out there were 16 families and they needed five acres apiece or something like that to actually have a sustainable farm. And the man said, in the honor of Gandhi, I have... I have land and I will grant them, you know, these 16 family, I will grant 80 acres of land. It was a beautiful gesture and a gift. So Venobo then walked the next day, two days to the next village, listened to their problems and concerns, especially for those who were the outcasts, um, in that system because that's a kind of racist apartheid system as well um and their their struggles and then he told the story of what had happened in the previous village and one of the rich elders in that village stood up and said well in in the spirit of gandhiji um how many how much land do we need in this village? And you know, and there were 12 families or something. I will give 60 acres. Um, and it began then what turned into the Bhutan Indian land reform movement. And Vinoba Bhave from that point on walked for more than a decade through every state and province in India and with his people collected 14 million acres of land that people voluntarily turned over to those who were poorer, who had nothing. It was the biggest land transfer in the history of the world, all done because he simply went and sat under the trees and listened to what people really needed. So this is what listening is about in some way. And I, you know, I have this, page that my, I I love it that my daughter wrote when she was like in second grade, she said, dad, I think you could use this. You all know this passage, but it's sort of in that elementary school handwriting. What is man without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone, men would surely die from great loneliness of spirit for whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man. That's that famous passage from Chief Seattle. Um, And so when we listen, and someone mentioned climate change, which is, of course, an enormous global problem, listening also means listening to the earth and really listening to what's happening so that we can respond in a way that is direct and courageous and intelligent um, no matter what. And I just came back from spending some weeks with my twin brother who's in the middle of a very difficult cancer treatment. He has a kind of blood cancer and he's been treated at Dana-Farber in Boston and in Brigham Hospital and so forth. And sitting in the hospital or in the cancer center, as I have on and off now for some weeks or last months, um, it's kind of an amazing thing I mean, first of all, the doctors and the staff there have been fantastic. They, they're just so devoted and loving. It's really, it's amazing. And sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. But their care is beautiful. And then you see all these families. It's not just the people with the bald heads and the cancer patients, and they can be little kids or they can be old people, every age. But you see all the concerned families, you know, all the brothers and sisters and moms and children and so forth. And there's something so tender about it. And then I start to feel all the people in the world who are tending one another when they get sick. It's not just there, but it's us taking care of each other. And there's something in just letting myself listen to that and see it, even though it's tragic in certain ways. um, There's also something magnificent in the kind of care and love that people offer to one another so I want to ask you let me see if I can find my page to do something Um, I'd like you to look around a little bit and catch one or two people's eye or glimpse it doesn't have to be that soulful Sufi stare or something like that but you know but just to look around at some people near you while I read a little passage to you Just look at some folks and let them look at you. Pick one. This person has a body and a mind just like me. This person has feelings, emotions, thoughts, joy and sorrow just like me. This person has in his or her life Experienced physical and emotional pain and suffering, just like me. This person has at some point been sad or disappointed, just like me. Let yourself see. This person has at some point been hurt or angry, just like me. This person worries and is frightened sometimes, just like me. This person has longed for friendship, just like me. This person is learning about life, just like me. This person wishes to be free from pain and suffering, just like me. Look at someone. Keep it going. This person wants to be caring and kind to others. Just like me. This person wishes to be safe and healthy. Just like me. This person wishes to be happy. To be loved. Just like me. And you start to feel as you do this the natural metta, the natural care, all it takes is a little bit of attention and listening. And you see, oh, I wish that this person would be well, that they they would have friendship and love and compassion for the difficulties and freed from struggle and be happy, peaceful. It's innate in us. And all it asks is a little bit of our attention. And what happens is you drop into the heart, as you quiet the mind and listen to the heart, you also tune into the universal laws of things. The noble truths that suffering has its causes, greed, hatred, ignorance, those become the cause of suffering. Prejudice, um, delusion, racism, you know the kind of fears that we carry, all those things create suffering, and their opposite, which is your birthright, which is also possible for you, and it's one of the beautiful things with the Dalai Lama and Tutu because they keep talking about human possibility. This is the world that we are that we are directing ourselves toward, that the opposite love. Clarity, wisdom, truthfulness, generosity, gratitude, these bring happiness. And so when the Buddha was asked about wise society, he said, yes, you know, when members of the society meet in harmony and depart in harmony, when they treat one another with respect, the society will prosper and not decline. When they honor the timeless wisdom, the ancient wisdom, they'll prosper and not decline. When they care for the most vulnerable among them, the women and the children, the aged, they will prosper and not decline. When they tend and care for the natural world around them, even then, they will prosper and not decline. When they treat one another with respect, they will prosper and not decline when they cultivate their personal mindfulness and loving kindness, such a society will grow and prosper and not decline. And you just look from the heart and you see what, what works for the happiness of human beings, just like me, that person and that one that one want to be happy. And you see the truth, again, from the Buddhist teachings, That hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. It doesn't matter what's happened. This is the way that it works. Hatred never ends by hatred. Or as Mark Twain said, kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. There's something really beautiful in that that kindness is the language that the blind can see and the deaf can hear. Oh, nobly born, begin the Buddhist text. Remember who you are. Remember the fundamental dignity that was born into you and in all beings. And as you listen, let your listening to one another be a listening that respects the dignity of the other, that each being deserves respect. The man was by age but looked many years older. He was an army veteran. He was also homeless, cold and hungry. I could see he would tried to wash up before coming to the social services department to ask for help. His face and hands were clean, but his clothes were filthy. And though he claimed not to have had any alcohol that day, the smell of it seeped from his pores. I wanted to get him into rehab, and I asked if he was ready to come in off the streets. No, ma'am, he said. All I'd like is a few dollars and some bus tickets. If I can get sober enough, they'll let me into the shelter across town. That shelter had 50 beds, cots, really. The homeless were admitted at night and forced out at dawn to eat breakfast in a nearby charity. 50 beds and nearly a 1,000 homeless in this part of the city. Winters here in Northern California means cold rain and mud. Even though this man and many like him slept under bridges to keep dry, the dampness penetrated everything. His clothes and the bedroll he'd placed on the floor smelled moldy. The pages of a book he carried were swollen. I asked him how many times he'd tried rehab. Two or three, he said, long time ago. Maybe it's time to try again. I explained that I'd had a client who'd gone through the program seven times before it took. Beside, I said, we're months away from warmer weather. What else have you got going on? I watched his face as he considered my offer. I thought I saw a flicker of hope in his eyes, followed by a shadow of doubt. He'd tried before. It had been hard, impossibly hard. So he was living on the streets. Finally, he lifted his head and looked at me. I reached for the phone. Shall I? I asked. He barely nodded yes. An hour later, I handed him over to a recovering alcoholic, also a veteran, who would drive him to one of the best rehab facilities in the county. Come visit me when you graduate, I said as they left. I barely recognized the man when he came into my office six months later. So tall and handsome, smelling like the outdoors and holding a huge bouquet of flowers. This is possible. It's there in us. Now what's also true, you know, the trauma and the fear we have is that more veterans from Vietnam have died of suicide than are written in names on that wall. How do we care for them? How do we care for one another? So in times of change, oh nobly born, here's what's asked. A kind of courage, but the first aspect of courage is humility. To be still, not to react so quickly. I mean, there's a reaction and it has its place, but to find in your being the ability to stay present and still even amidst the uncertainty. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to say it's uncertain, isn't it? When people would ask him about anything. He would just laugh and say, it's uncertain, isn't it? That was like one of his favorite phrases, it's uncertain, isn't it? And kind of drumming it into you. Well, how do I do this? What about that? It's uncertain, isn't it? Tell me about enlightenment. It's uncertain, isn't it? You're supposed to be enlightened. That's uncertain, isn't it? You know? And there's a kind of uh, humility that's asked to say, we actually don't know yet. We don't know what will happen politically Whatever side you're on, we don't know what will happen in other ways in the society or in the world. Um, And so it's not given to us yet to know that. And we have to let ourselves wait and look and listen deeply. It says in the Tao, Can you be still and not act until the right action comes of itself? Can you let the mind and heart settle like stirred up water until things are clear, and you know how to act in concert with the Tao. It also asks of us a kind of trust, a trust in mystery, trust in something vast, in the huge cycles of history. We're in a historic period, and a kind of visible one to us. Um, But there are other Realities that are also true. Gandhi again says, I believe in the unity of all things. And therefore I believe that if one person gains, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. So humility. It's interesting reading Tutu and the Dalai Lama, because they are asked, what do you do in times of despair? How do you respond? And they say, this is a beautiful phrase, they say, you show your humanity. What do you do in times of despair? You show your humanity. And they do, they make themselves vulnerable. And here's a, a favorite story you all know, or most of you know, who Black Elk was, the great Sioux Lakota native medicine man, You know, one of the greatest of the era. And there's this famous biography that was done by John Neihard called Black Elk Speaks. And in the last chapter of this book, Neihard tells about Black Elk's final hike up Harney Peak, which is this mountain in the middle of the Dakotas, where he'd had his sacred vision as a young shaman. Um, And this holy man explained to Neihart that when death approaches, a Lakota could climb this mountain to see if the great spirit had approved of their life. And rain would fall on those who had the blessing or the approval of the great spirit. Now, as a young man, Black Elk, had had a vision that told him how to save his people and homeland from the soldiers and the settlers. Remember, this was probably back in the 1890s that he was born. And all of his years, he had worked to fulfill this vision and restore what he called the sacred hoop, the circle of life. However, he felt that he had failed and that the sacred hoop was broken. The day of his climb, Black Elk was an old man he dressed in red long johns, moccasins, war paint, and a feathered war headdress. Slowly and laboriously, he climbed to the summit. He was oblivious to the tourists who stared at him. Nighart teased him, said that he should have picked a day with at least one cloud in the sky, but Black Elk rebuked him, saying that the rain would have nothing to do with the weather. At the top of the peak, not far from the tourist, the old man lay down under a blue sky. To his astonishment, Neihard watched as a few small clouds immediately formed over Black Elk, and a soft rain began to fall, and Black Elk wept with relief. He felt that even though he had not succeeded in fulfilling the vision of the sacred hoop, that the great spirit was signaling to him that he had done his best we are really in the midst of something so much vaster than our ideas, whether they're political or international or social or, you know, spiritual, whatever, all the kinds of ideas that we have, we're in the middle of some vast mystery of human incarnation on this earth. And it's evolution. We hope on a good day, um, with its fits and starts. It's it's how it, it's how it works. Um, And we don't know, but what we can do is begin to find a trust that we can do our part in this, no matter what, that like black elk, we don't know about restoring the sacred hoop, but as it said in the end, he wept with relief, even though he had not succeeded in fulfilling his vision, the great spirit was signaling that he had done his best. He had done his part. This is the secret. You're part of something vast and enormous. And the secret is to act beautifully, even though it's not given to you to determine the outcome, to act beautifully without attachment to the fruits of your actions, because that's not given to you. But what is given to you is your heart and your voice and your spirit. And sometimes... It doesn't take that much. It only takes a little loving awareness at the right time with that person or those people. I got this note that came from somebody. I get all these kind of, you know, whether they're descriptions of people's practice or questions or thank yous. This was sort of a thank you note. It was a thank you note. I don't really know how to talk to Jack directly, but I want to express how grateful I am right now just to be aware of your teaching. I found you listening to the podcast of Duncan Trussell, this guy that I've done some things. And little by little, your idea of loving yourself and having compassion kept inching their way toward what I guess is my heart. You soothed me in some of the darker days of my life and gave me a glimpse into a more loving reality. Tonight, after resisting for months and months, I finally gave in and tried meditating. I decided after hearing you speak through my phone for all these months, that I would just sit with myself for a while and see what happened. I'm not sure I've ever cried tears and tears of joy like that in the 21 years I've lived so far. For the first time I stopped and really held my anger that I'd latched onto, my hatred, my anxiety, my self-judgment, everything else I criticized myself about with softness and compassion, without judgment. And all of a sudden, I felt like I really could be loving to myself in the same way that I want to love others. I just finally got some relief with what I felt inside. And I want you to know that I love you for it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Just It doesn't take that much finally sitting down and saying, we can do this, I can do this. You've been training for this kind of a period that we're going through for a long time. You have. And the words from the Buddha again, this is from the Majjhima Nikaya, Something in your heart knows the truth of this. Others will be cruel. We shall not be cruel. Thus, we will incline our hearts. Others will kill or harm living beings. We will not harm living beings. Thus, we will incline our hearts. Others will be greedy. We will be generous. Thus, we will incline our hearts. Others will speak falsely, maliciously we will speak truthfully and kindly. Thus we will incline our hearts. Others will be envious, we will not be. Thus we will incline our hearts. Others will be arrogant, we will not be arrogant. Thus we will incline our hearts. Others will be unmindful, we shall establish mindful presence, thus we will incline our hearts others will lack wisdom, we shall cultivate wisdom. Thus we will incline our hearts. This is a instruction of intention, but it's really a description of what you've been doing and learning, not just here at Spirit Rock. Some of you come for a long time, some quite new, but you're here in some way, your presence um, is an expression of the wisdom that you already carry. It's not that you're getting something new here. You know, you're just getting a little team spirit or something like that. You've been training in training for this for a long time. In steadiness, in compassion, in in, in deep values. And in times of uncertainty, you become the real bodhisattva. Bodhisattva means a being who's dedicated to compassion for all life, no matter what. And in Zen, they say there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. You quiet the mind, open the heart, and then you get up from sitting and you tend, whether it's the climate or whether it's you know, immigrants or whatever it is that's in front of you. Um, that needs your care and attention. Um, people are hungry, you feed them. Someone's hurt, you bring what healing you can. Not because you're supposed to or it's going to make you some you know, special person. But as the Dalai Lama says, it's the only thing that brings true joy in this life is to be able also to serve life itself, to bring some of your gift to this world to make a difference to a single child, to make a conscious business, to, to fight for justice. And so you quiet the mind and like the Tao, you let yourself get still until the right action. You want to be strategic at this time. And strategic means that you do have to be quiet and make yourself a zone of peace and let yourself become a sanctuary so that the work and the things that you care about come from a deep place of understanding and the courage to be true to your heart. And then, then you connect with the others after you sit quietly. And Trudy said in the, in the Darfur refugee camps, the greeting, they don't ask how you are. The greeting there is how is your family? That's how they greet one another. What a beautiful greeting. How is your family? And then, of course, Mother Teresa said, the problem with you is that you may draw your family circle too small. How is your family? And it's a big family. It's humanity. It's the animals. It's the beings of the earth. It's libertarians and Democrats and Republicans and Greens and all those in-betweens. A person with courage never needs weapons, but they may need bail. (laughs) And as Thomas Jefferson says, one person with courage is a majority. One person with courage is a majority. And I read this last time um, about Barbara Widener who founded Grandmothers for Peace. She says, I began to question, what kind of a world am I living for? My leaving for my grandchildren? So I got a sign, A Grandmother for Peace, and stood on a street corner. Then I joined others kneeling as a human barrier at a munitions factory. I was taken to prison, strip searched, thrown into a cell. Something happened to me. I realized they couldn't do anything more. I was free. And now Barbara and her organization, Grandmothers for Peace, works in dozens of countries around the world. One person with courage is a majority. The courage to connect. How is your family? To say that to anybody. How is your family? And as the Dalai Lama and Tutu speak about, to rejoice. To see the enchantment of the world no matter what, because it is extraordinary to bring a, a a beautiful smile and a joyful heart, even into the circumstances of difficulty, to live with gratitude. Whether it's the holy or the broken hallelujah, to honor our beloved friend Leonard Cohen, even though it all went wrong, I stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my lips, but hallelujah. You've been training for this for a long time. And uh, carry what's beautiful from the temple back out into the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good night.